What's up, guys? This is Pat, and before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder to please hit that subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. Also, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, at The Founder Hour. All right, here we go. Welcome to the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And I'm Posh. And we're hanging out today with Yancey Strickler. He's uh, the co-founder of Kickstarter. He's an author, uh, a writer, I think formerly a journalist. Is that right? Sure. Sure. Uh, you know, in the music scene. So excited to, to learn about your story and, and chat with you and, and talk about sort of what you've done up until this point and what's to come next. So thanks for, uh, thanks for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so uh, kind of to take it all the way back, uh, tell us a little bit about sort of the early days where you grew up, um, what, what sort of things were you into, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, was, I grew up in, uh, in southwest Virginia um, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, which is part of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, you know, my, my parents split when I was three. My dad was a, a traveling waterbed salesman and musician. My mom was a secretary. And when I was about four, six or so my mom remarried and we moved out to a farm and i grew up in the country uh hmm. so i grew up on like on a cattle farm uh we just rented the house there and uh yeah and i i didn't really have any neighbors and so i um just read books all the time and uh you know we didn't really have much in the way of tv either so yeah i was just always reading books and um and my dream was always to be a writer and uh you know, yeah, that that's that was sort of where I disappeared to and what I aspired to. What kind of books were you reading? Uh, I mean, I think like, you know, uh, The Hardy Boys, uh, Matilda. Matilda was my favorite book for a long time, Harriet the Spy. And then I started getting into like um, uh, reading some of my dad's books. Like I read Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test while I was in high school and started, you know, uh, Soldier in the Rain. I remember reading Slaughterhouse-Five. Um, you know, so I got into those things too, but you know, may, maybe the biggest life-changing read was maybe all the president's men. Um, that, that was probably my favorite book starting from about the age of 12 or 13 about Watergate. Mm. And that made me interested in journalism. And, uh, and that just seemed, that just seemed exciting and yeah, both exciting and like something I could possibly do. You know, Indiana Jones was also exciting, but I wasn't gonna crack a whip and, you know, save the right. idol, the golden idol, but you know. Right. Asking people questions, figuring things out, that seemed plausible. Is there any like any any specific type of writing you wanted to do when you grew up? Like did you envision yourself as that kind of writer? Uh I don't even know. I don't I don't know that I had any specific goal. I mean, I think I did a lot of things, you know, I would write poetry, I wrote short stories, I wrote all, you know, just as a kid you're just having fun. Yeah. It was just knowing that it it was just feeling that's that's what I was good at. And and reading was certainly always my favorite thing. So it's just like I don't know. It's just just doing what was obvious. Was there any like anyone? I guess growing up was I don't know, was it like that told you that you were good at writing? Like or was it something that you just felt yourself? Like was it like some sort of external? I think it was just enjoyed. It was just what I would do yeah. when I would what I would do on my own. Sure, I would play Legos or whatever. But also, I would like I would just write stories. And that's just that was fun. That was interesting. And also we had, you know, my mom as a secretary, she had a so we had a Mac a Macintosh two and Apple two in our house starting in the mid eighties because mm. she would have to do work for the professor she worked for. 
Um, and so then we had a computer in our house from very early on and my mom taught me how to use that. And, uh, and so that was another, you know, it was also a thing that I would do on the computer too, even at a pretty early age. Mm. Going into high school, uh, what kind of kid were you like? Um, you know, uh, I think pretty, pretty nerdy, pretty awkward. Uh, I didn't have, I went to like a, a Christian school through fifth grade and then sixth grade started going to public school and like in a new area where we'd moved. That I was, was kind of like me at the rural. same thing. Yeah. Six to seventh. Yeah. Still in Virginia. Yeah. Still in Virginia. Uh, and so that was just a big culture change. Um, and, uh, and so that, you know, that school was hard. The school was hard for me from like sixth grade on, I would say. Just like, you know, I was into music and I was into books and, but I wasn't the most, you know, I wasn't socially terrible, but I wasn't the most socially adjusted person. And, uh, and I just remember, you know, even at the start of a school year, like I would, we would pick out new clothes and I would try to get the most normal seeming clothes possible, but still like people could tell I wasn't like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so that was a real struggle. Um, you know, I'd have a few good friends, you know, friends with a lot of, uh, a lot of girls, uh, and then like had a small, a small group of other friends. And then, and then things sort of changed for me. My junior year of high school, I got into like a magnet school program where they, this thing called the governor's school picked two to four kids from each school in the state. Um, so I got to go to that for half a day. Uh, and there, you know, there I met people that I really connected with for the first time since I was like, you know, in, in elementary school. Um, and those are still, you know, my, my best friendships to this day. And those are people coming from similarly from more rural communities. And this one friend in particular, his parents were artists who'd moved out to the country in the seventies and, but they were from New York and from Europe. And so that going to his house and, seeing what else life could be being in a place where you ate dinner at eight o'clock and you drank wine and you know, those, and, and they got the New Yorker, like those things were so like, I'd never seen anything like that before. Mm. Um, and so that was like a, just sort of showed what else, what else was out there in the world. And for me as someone who was naturally curious, uh, and always liked to learn, like all that was awesome. You know, I, I, it was all very exciting. Were like English classes like your best classes, or did you? Yeah, yeah, I was good at yeah, I was good at that. I mean, I, I you know, high school was easy. Yeah, you know, some things I didn't. I mean, I I, I did pretty well at everything. Um, but sure, yeah, I mean, reading was. I mean, I you know, it'd be like classes we would read in English would be classes I would would be books. The books we would read in English class would have been things I'd read. Yeah, a year or two before, right? Um, but that was just because that's what I liked to do. Mm. Um, you mentioned music. How did how did that come about? How did you fall into to music? Uh, uh, my, you know, my dad is a musician. My mom also loves music, but my my dad sort of forced the guitar on me from a young age. And probably when I was six or seven, I started really taking lessons. And maybe when I was by the time I was about fifteen, I liked it. Mm. Um, was it like and, classical guitar? Or? No, no. Just just starting with the basics. And then when it clicked for me was like age 12 when my dad taught me how to play Blackbird, the Beatles song mm, on guitar. Yeah, so that yeah. was like, that was rewarding and fun and a song I liked. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that, that made it more interesting. But yeah, I mean, I was always, 
you know, my dad always had bands. The bands would practice in our tiny house, like while I would sleep in the room next door. Like I was just around it all the time, mm. all the time, like always bands playing just around me as a kid. And then my dad just had this gigantic, gigantic record collection because he worked in a record store for years and in the 60s. And, uh, and so it was just a regular thing for him to make me sit on the couch and then play me songs. And like, you would have to, literally you'd have to sit there for two hours while he would play you. He'd just say, just one more. He would always say, just yeah. one more. And then, you know, you knew it was just, you were trapped. Yeah. Uh, and then later <laughs> when I started liking those songs, it was annoying. Um, but you know, so a lot of it was just, it was just the house I grew mm. up in. And then I, but I had a, you know, I had a deep, a deep connection, deep affinity. You know, I listened to the radio. I knew, you know, uh, yeah, when I was age seven, I, I started a beach boys fan club that I tried to get like my cousins and friends to join with me. And, you know, just cause I, yeah, I really liked them at that time. So it's just always something I connected with. And then as I became like a teenager, you know, music became even more of an identity. And so I was, you know, 12 years old in 1990, 1991. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that's like when Nirvana's just happening. And, um, and, you know, I really, that, that remade me, you know. You I mean, sort of identified with? Yeah, definitely. I mean, with Kurt for sure, never Pearl Jam, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, like, I'm very much a product of a Kurt Cobain kind of ethos, I think, in a lot of ways. And then also growing up in Virginia, the other, like the other big legacy we had there was Fugazi and sort of like the DC right. punk hardcore scene was also very local. I saw Fugazi was like one of my first shows I saw as like a teenager, you know, 13, 14, because uh, they would play all ages shows. Um, and, and for those who may not really know, you know, the story behind from Nirvana and like that kind of, you know, movement, like what what would you say like you identified with the most? Well, I mean, it's just like, it was a, it was a, it, it's really hard to overstate the degree to which there was just a massive culture shift right. where uh, a certain predominant culture that had been musically was represented by hair metal and, um, you know, guns and roses, things like that. Mm -hmm. And which for me represented like uh, a lot of the bullies in my school um, that that got supplanted by this new sound of bands um, led by Nirvana, but also you know Jane's Addiction, Alice in Chains, mm -hmm. you know a whole whole cluster of these groups, Soundgarden, um, that suddenly were just like breaking through and were very clearly surpassing this like previous cultural paradigm. And 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 one of the things that distinguished these groups was their value systems, you know. Kurt Cobain was like a, would talk about being a feminist and they right. would cross dress and they embraced all these things. And like, that was like extremely, you know, just extremely challenging at the time. And, um, and you know, the music was great and they felt young in a way that, you know, that I identified with and yeah, it was exciting. It sort of, it sort of expressed like, like, we were on the map and we just meaning like people who don't feel like they fit in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is a moment. And so, you know, MTV was such the center of culture. So as those songs, you know, it smells like teen spirit starts playing on MTV all the time. Like it, it really just made, it, it made a big difference in the larger culture. It shows, uh, it shows you how many like people in the world felt the same way, but there was like nothing that like really spoke to them until 
they sort of broke out on the scene, right? Yeah, and then you know, and then what it leads you into because like you know, Nirvana, Nirvana are like extraordinarily generous artists where they from the beginning they use their fame to highlight all of their friends and their forebears who they wanted to give a shout out. Like when they when they played on MTV Unplugged, which is such a big thing to play on, mm-hmm. like they brought out the Meat Puppets. They they covered three Meat Puppet songs together. Like half the songs they did were covers, and a lot of those were unknown songs by unknown artists that were their friends. So like that's how that was their thought process. How do we use this? We elevate other people. Yeah. And so you know the liner notes of Nirvana albums would just have like Kurt writing down all the bands he liked, and you're learning about Slant Six, and you're learning about these things that you never would have heard of, and you know, he was just such a knowledgeable guy about music. Did you ever get and to so see them? And so then you just get dig. You just keep digging down. Did you ever get to see them play live? Or I never saw Nirvana play. Um, I saw other bands that era. Yeah, but I never saw Nirvana. So you're clearly super passionate, you know, at this point, obviously, and still uh, about music. Um, what happened when you went to college? Like you, you decided to go to college. What did you study? And, and what did you sort of envision that would become? Um, you know, I, I studied, I ended up studying, uh, got a double major in English and literary and cultural studies. Literary and cultural studies was basically like, you know, cultural theory attaching philosophy and American studies and various history classes to do like, uh, you know, yeah, the just critical readings on the world. So like I wrote a, it's not exactly a dissertation thesis, but you have to produce a final paper. And mine was about like, uh, the hegemonic properties of a popular culture, just like the way the popular culture would absorb any attempt to, uh, you know, any attempt to change it. Um, but, uh, yeah, college, college was fine. I, I don't know that I made the most of it. Uh, I, did, did you go? I went to, I went to school called William and Mary in yeah. Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I made some great friends there who I still care about, but I, I, again, there felt like an outsider. Um, why do you think that is? Why did you feel like an outsider? Well, I mean, William & Mary is like, um, you know, some, at the time, something like 80% Greek, like everyone's in frats and sororities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it just has that culture. And, uh, you know, and I went there hoping to be around some, something like, I was hoping for something like my governor's school experience, and what it wasn't that. It wasn't that. I met some of those kinds of people there, but like, you know, I experienced some of the same issues of getting... Uh, getting bullied and harassed there as I did in high school. Do you think that's like the general college education system or, or do you think it was specific to William and Mary? I think it's a, cause I feel like, I think it's a general yeah. education system in schools that have Greek societies. Right. Like sort of the lar- larger institutions that have. William, William Mary's not even a big school, but they just right. have, they just allow it. But like, if you go to us, I think if you go to a school that doesn't allow that, I don't think you have that culture so much. Yeah. Um, so you, you graduated with a double major. Um, yeah. What, what about, like, did you see, did you like think that you would be a writer, like talking, like you're so, it seems like you're really obsessed with like culture, like just sort of this whole cultural shifts and paradigms. Like what did, what, what, what did you see that would become in your professional life? Like you would sort of be in that? I don't know how clear an idea I had. I mean, I started writing for Pitchfork while I was still in college. So that was big. Like I was, um. I was the music director of my college radio station, or no, I was the, yeah, one of the music directors at my college radio station. And I was like writing reviews for free for various zines. Um, so I was already doing that. Yeah. And, and I was doing that because those are the places I read. And, 
you learn about promo CDs, how if people write about music, they get promo CDs of music before other people hear it. And that was just like, couldn't even imagine what it would mean to get into that kind of jackpot of like hearing music before other people. So it was just like, I wanted that. Um, and so I was doing it already. And I started writing for Pitchfork. I did, did a few, few reviews for them. Was and, that hard and I to was, do? Like, was it hard to get those? Or like, it was no, it was just so early. I mean, this yeah. was like, this was like their first year in existence. And they just put up a post one day that said, Hey, we're looking for more writers. Anyone like write in. And so I wrote in and, you know, Ryan, the founder wrote back, was like, sure, you know, your try a few. When the founder, um, when the founder writes back. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, Pitchfork <laughs> then was like three or four people. Yeah. And, you know, um, and there was like a, you know, message boards that I was a part of that were a, a lot of other like, People that have gone on to be important internet writers, uh, uh, like were also there talking. Just sort of like the early crew of people who, yeah, cared about culture, had access to technology, were the certain age, you know, uh, liked certain kinds of things. You just congregated, and that world was smaller. Um, and so I ended up moving to New York. I mean, it wasn't a plan. It was like I graduated college at the time. I was um living in where I went to school in Williamsburg, Virginia, and I was the night manager of a day's end. I like worked uh, did tech support for the college and I did I worked as a mover too. Like I had those three jobs while going to school and it was awesome. I like by then I enjoyed it. Um and I didn't wasn't sure what I was gonna do and then my best friend from high school who I'd gone to that who I'd met at that governor's school called and just said, Hey, me and a group of Four guys got a house in Coney Island. Can you be here? And you know, by the end of the week, this is on like a Tuesday or something. And like, like, like that week, like yeah. Help move? Can you move here? Oh, okay. And you can, yeah, not to help oh, no. move. Oh, can oh. you come move here yourself? <laughs> but it was basically like, I think it was basically then being like, oh man, we have to make this deposit. We don't have enough yeah, money. Who can we get? Room. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wait, this can be a bedroom. Yeah. Uh, so I think I was that call. Yeah. Um, and I ended up saying yes. You know, it was so immediate. I ended up saying yes. And um, and was in New York like within a week. And uh, and you know, and, and then I started looking for jobs. And I'd say about three months later I got I got a job and it was like through a classified the New York Times, uh, and it was for a uh, a, a radio news service where they would write news blurbs that DJs would read out on the air, mm. and the job was to write those news blurbs yeah. and um so it was like a team of people that did that so i got a job doing that and so for three years i did that wow and for i'd have to write 12 stories a day of like you know 75 word sort of capsules of entertainment and mm. like pop and modern rock news did you enjoy that yeah it was awesome it was awesome awesome yeah, great editor like you have to make it so tight and punchy you know part of your day is spent looking for what are stories they someone might want to some that people might want to listen to uh and then your editor tells you okay here are the ones you're going to write mm -hmm. and then you have to do a draft and like get it so tight get the facts perfect oh it's amazing it's like such a great such a great training uh, oh. to do that and what was your experience like in new york you know beyond just work like living there with all these guys and being in this big city you know I, I assume it was different than living in virginia what were some things that really you know stood out to you in your time there well i mean uh coney island was so far out um you know it was like an hour 10 for me to get to work um you, you used so, to work in manhattan yeah i would work in midtown um and so for all of us it was just like it was just so far out in a way it was like a a good halfway house transition mm. to new york mm. um but i you know i i was 
I was not happy my first few years there. Um, you know, I had no money. I didn't know where to go. It was, yeah, it was intimidating. I'd been to New York a few times, um, and I knew my way around a little bit. But yeah, it was hard. Uh, but honestly, you don't have enough money to leave because, like, you don't have you, to go somewhere else. You have to have a car, and you're like, how might how would I ever get money to have a car? Like, spend all that on an apartment. Um, and so you're you're just kind of forced to get better at it. And then I'd say within two years, I started to like feel more confident. And um, and then that's exciting. It's exciting to be good at something that you know is difficult. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was just, you know, going to see a lot of music, hanging out with other people my age, you know, trying to, yeah, I mean, it was a, it's a great time. I mean, that's like the strokes are coming up then and, um you know, and then after two years in Coney Island, uh, some of us moved to the Lower East Side. I mean, I ended up living in around the Lower East Side for like the next 14, 15 years with a couple wow. spots elsewhere uh, around the city. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, New York, I ended up loving. It was very, you know, New York, New York was always very generous to me and uh, and had a lot of, yeah, a, a lot of great experiences there. And, um yeah, and just sort of being forced to it just you know it just forces you to grow to to grow or leave basically. At this time, did you feel like you were becoming less of a misfit, like as a young professional, than you were in you know high school and college? No, I think my I think I still had that same story uh, from myself because I think what I the interesting thing that happened to me is I ended up I got laid off from that radio job um, and then. Uh, ended up getting a job inside, um, like a first a company called Flavor Pill, then another company called E Music, and they were sort of like, now I guess we would call them dot coms or startups. At the time, they weren't that; they're just small companies. Um, this is like during the dot com boom. Th- this no, this is like two thousand three, two thousand four. Okay, so like uh, yeah, two thousand five. Yeah. Um, and I got hired in those places in like editorial roles, writer kind of roles. But then you're in meetings that are about product that are about marketing that are about strategy that are about management whatever you know you're just in different contexts and and i ended up being really good at that stuff and uh, look at all the things you just mentioned yeah yeah i just i would have good ideas i would have good instincts like people Mm -hmm. would listen to me and um i didn't i was surprised to be good at those kinds of things why do you think that Uh, was was it just because you had just such a deep interest in it that you you wanted to do well at it or was it more than I that? I think it's just my how my brain works. I just think my brain absorbs a lot and I can make connections between things and yeah, there's just there's just a you know, I just look at things differently. Mm. Um and I can articulate myself pretty well. Mm. Um but I, you know, as I as I was good at these things and I kept being invited to do more to be more part of those kinds of decisions and conversations and that um that honestly made me feel conflicted because I was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm a creative person. Like I'm not a, I'm not a business guy and you know, I don't want to be a business person. And so I, it felt like, yeah, it just felt like things that I, I, I almost needed to give myself permission to do, or I would feel guilty about being good at in a way. And I had to become like, accept the idea of, um, yeah, that was an okay. It was okay as a creative person to be to care about those things, and it didn't make me less of an of a creative person. Yeah. But that, like, to me, those roles, those lines, yeah, I almost think about it as like as like the the Nirvana example 
from earlier, but like these, these, just this divide between roles or types of people or types of profession just felt very clear to me. And, and I don't know if that was, if that was like truly more the case then, or if that was because I was younger, or if that's just like right. my lens being imposed like what upon did, the what world. What did you imagine like a business person to look like or be? Well, I saw, I saw, I mean, I saw them there. Yeah. yeah. I knew exactly what they were like. I was surrounded by them all the time. Hmm. And it's very clear, like what the, yeah. who is who. Yeah. yeah. And it could tell by, I mean, just from your co who your, which coworkers were your friends and who were not, you knew who was, who was like a suit or a, a suit wannabe and mm. who was cool. Right. You know, who cared about yeah. anything else. Mm -hmm. No, it's interesting. I think a lot of it, a lot of it has changed since then. And, and today, most of the creatives are the business, are the like the business people, right? Like, like I don't know so, that that's true. I, I think. Well, well, well I, I guess that's why it matters how how you define a business person, right? Like, in in this day and age, like an artist, a musician, um, but that's they're not different. necessarily represented only by like a big label, like record label. Like they they are their own business. Like they're they're a business person. Sure. But I think that like they are, but their goals as a business person are so different. So I think it's a, it gives, it gives, you know, because they're, they like, they express themselves in a form that like interacts with the market and that they are, they have learned that it's smarter and to your advantage to be educated about how to do that yourself rather than outsourcing it to someone else because mm. you get screwed. Right. But like, a business person is looking to enter the market to extract from the market, and, you know, and and I just think it's like I just think that the the motivations are very different. But like this was something with Kickstarter that we had we thought a lot about mm -hmm. um, because you know we're making a tool that allows people to fund early ideas, and from the you know our focus was on creative people, creative projects. We didn't want we didn't want the site to be just about we didn't want it to be for businesses. We wanted it to be for creative projects, for people making artworks right. um, and creative works. We wanted to have a very like broad view of what constituted a creative project. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, that was a touchy thing to do to even to introduce something that had money and funding so blatantly a part of it to the to the creative world as Kickstarter was. Like Kickstarter was something that sort of collapse that wall mm -hmm. in a way that between like the business side and the creative side in a way that was, I think, welcome, but also uncomfortable. Um, and, and still, and I, and so, the, I, so I felt that tension again there um, where I felt like Kickstarter was, was collapsing those two things and bringing them together. Why did you have this internal conflict of creative versus business? I mean, in your mind, why were, why were they these mutually exclusive things? Well, because I, I still think they are. I mean, I because I think that, um, you know, if you think about the creative, creative industries, um, there are people who make artwork and creative work, mm -hmm. and then there are people who like build a highway to sell that creative right. artwork. Right, and those are just very different people, and 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 with very different sets of values. You know, if a movie studio or if, a, you know, if a movie studio was run by, truly run by artists, it would function very, very differently. If, a, if a newspaper money? was run by journalists, it would function very, very differently. Like these are, these are very different, mm -hmm. just 
value systems and beliefs. And so for me, it's like, I know, you know, I, I know what kind of value system I have. And so I feel like, um, and we saw it in Kickstarter, you know, we saw it in Kickstarter for us. Like we became a PBC, a public benefit corporation to like legally delineate what our values were. And in contrast to the rest of the world that we're a part of, which says that you are legally expected to maximize shareholder value. You're legally expected to just make every decision a financial one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that belief is so pervasive that like people went to the trouble of creating a different legal category to allow people right. to, you know, to separate themselves. What led to, you know, Kickstarter? I know you said that you had all these kind of different jobs in New York. Talk to us about, you know, what led up to the early days of Kickstarter. Um, well, Kickstarter started with, uh, with Perry, Perry Chen, uh, in Perry in 2001 or 2002. And you knew him back then? No, I didn't know him at this point. Uh, 2001, 2002, he had, um, he'd wanted to throw a concert in New Orleans where he was living and, uh, it was going to have to front like 20 grand to make it happen. And during that moment, he had this idea of what if instead I could propose the idea for the concert online, um, and people put up their credit cards to buy tickets, but no one gets charged unless the show sells out. Like that way, I'm not stuck making this decision. Everyone can make it together. But um, the show didn't end up happening, and he didn't make that website because, like in 2001, 2002, that's a very different internet. Right. You know, that's the crash, but that's also like to have a website, you have to have a closet full of servers. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a very, very different world. Um, so he spent some time thinking about the idea more. Um, and then we met in 2005 in New York. Um, he had moved back because he thought, I'm going to, I need to try to make this happen. And then we happened to meet because I, I was a, a regular at a place where he was waiting tables at the time. Um, and we got to be friends. And Like you literally like went to the restaurant and he was like your waiter? Yeah, he just worked there. Yeah, and so we would like I would oh. I would go there often. So we would just talk because we both like basketball, and we just you know yeah. we're friendly with each other. You're a Knicks fan? Uh, no, Rockets fans. Uh, and uh, and so we ended up yeah becoming friends. And he he shared with me, uh, told me about this idea he had had, and um, and that you know and and he was, you know, he had like had me sign an NDA. Like he was he was he was well prepared. Um, but so we started talking about it and talking about this idea for what what would become Kickstarter, but the idea for crowdfunding. Why do you th- why do you think like he wanted to tell you about the idea? Just because you guys were friends, or was there more to it than that? Uh, you know, my day job was at a tech company. Um, I, you know, like new artists and creative people. I like at the time had a record label that I was running on on the side too. Like I, I don't know, I was. We just got along. Just got along. Just you know, similar. Similar outlook. Um, what was he doing at the time? He was, you know, at that time he was waiting. He was waiting tables part time. He was working on this idea. He was making art. You know, previously he had been a recording engineer. Um, you know, and then way way back he'd been a day trader for a little bit. He'd sort of bounced so around a lot, a lot of, a lot of different experience. things. No, no, we were not business people at all. This Seems was like just you guys like, were both like going back to the creative versus business. Like you guys were both creatives. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And when we found our our third, uh, we found Charles Adler a year later. Um, Charles was a designer, um, 
but another, he's also creative. Another creative. <laughs> also not a business person. Um, huh. And so, you know, also not technical people. Yeah. Um, but And you literally started a technical business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a lot of challenge for that uh, for a while, like um, hiring contract developers and sort of not knowing what we were doing and kind of getting burned and... Um, um, and, and yeah, there was, there was, you know, from the time that, um, I got involved, it was like three and a half, almost four years later that the site launched, um, you know, maybe two and a half years after Charles launched, but it was a long, it was a long road and, and really like it was Perry and Charles that pushed, you know, so much during, um, during a couple of those periods in the years before we launched where, you know, there are moments where it just seemed like it could it could die. Like there's the moment where the the idea just could die because it's been so hard to get it there, um, and then just like the site kept not getting built, and there just kept being obstacles. Right. It's interesting because like you we going back to our conversation about like creatives versus business people and how you know creatives sort of can just do it and put it out there and and not have to like and the business people are sort of just fi- trying to find those like creatives to 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 push out there for other reasons um but for you guys like you guys were these three creatives launching a business like a technical business so it, it was kind of like the roles were were flipped in a way where right like you guys you guys can't create it yourselves necessarily you have to like hire out people and, and depend on other people and and now it it, it takes longer than Art, if you were i mean to, artists have to depend on other people too right i mean you need yeah. like teams you need production you need you know and right. everyone you need your crew of people that you know how to trust the, our issue was that we're trying to do something in a world where we don't know who we can trust. So we don't know, we don't have that crew. Like anytime you do something and you're like, before you know how to know who's good or not, Mm -hmm. right. You're just, you're just guessing. If you do well your first time, you just got lucky, you know, you just got lucky. Uh, So I think it's just, it's just like that. Um, And we would, we would talk to potential investors and we talked to a lot of artists and, you know, artists, almost always got it, you know, and thought, yeah, the idea, you know, cause our pitch to them was, listen, if you're, if you're trying to make a new album, a new, you know, movie, whatever it is, you're trying to, you're pitching someone who's looking for a hit. Like mm-hmm. they're looking to put money into something that will make them money. Um, but you know, most of your ideas are just, they have no desire to make money. They just want to exist. Like you're just trying to make the idea in your head real and like be able to do that. And that, like, that's the goal of an artist. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we're building a place where people will put up money to fund those projects, but there will be no financial upside. Like if someone puts up money, they get a copy of it when you're done or their name is in it if you want to let them do that. Yeah. But there's no financial upside, so there's no need to make hits. You can just pitch the vision of what you want to do. Um, and, you know, for every artist, like that's amazing. Um, for a lot of the more traditional investors or more business-minded people, they you know, their answer would be why, like, I got to get a piece. Like I got to get a piece of what I put mm-hmm. money into, and otherwise, this makes no sense. No one's going to do this. But our belief was that the relationship between artists and fans are is so strong, and also that there are a million valid reasons to do something other than financial upside. And the idea that we have locked ourselves into a reality, a creative reality, where unless you have a rich uncle or you yourself are wealthy, like your only choice is to try to make something that will make someone else money just is like just so obviously wrong. Right. Um, and so f- for us, the story of what we were doing was to try to create a separate economy inside the larger one where money would change hands for 
you know, you could say they're altruistic reasons, but it's just like for all the other reasons why cool things should happen. And was this something that I'm, I know you mentioned Perry was like deeply passionate about and working on. Was it the same for you or was it something that you sort of developed as you worked on it more um, in those early days? Well, I mean, I, um, you know, I had, I had the deep emotional connection to the struggle of being an artist, trying to work right. with integrity and just like writing about those people, want, you know, just wanting to be someone like right. that. So you saw like the possibilities of what this could create for them. Well, I just knew the problem and I was very aware, like I worked in a company that was involved in digital music in 2005. So that's like when the music industry is sort of crashing and changing over. And the whole debate is about how to monetize music. And, mm-hmm. you know, all I could think about is like, everyone's acting like music is this like, plentiful natural resource like why is anyone questioning like well where does this music come from in the first place like what do those people need like everyone's just looking to how do we sell the stuff that's already been made Mm -hmm. but no one's talking about well how does this stuff get made in the first place Mm -hmm. i was just so struck with like everyone's focusing here for everyone i know like everyone's focusing at the end of the pipe everyone i know is like looking way earlier in the process yeah like that's the hard part um and so there's just a mismatch of like again just seeing uh seeing art as a as a good um as a plentiful bountiful good and that yeah just not thinking about how it got made and especially not thinking about how it got made if it wasn't likely to make more than like you know a hundred million dollars the box office or whatever that equivalent is in each industry you said it took about well i guess from the time you got involved three three and a half years to launch um when Kickstarter finally launched. What did what did it look like? I mean, not at all dissimilar from what it does today, to be honest. Um, you know, there were the first day there were I think two projects. First one was by Perry, second one was by me, Perry, and a friend of ours, Claudia. Um <laughs> and uh but yeah, it was it was very you know, just very simple, but not that dis- not that far from what it is today. Um, you know, when we launched um, you know, we've been telling our friends about the site for years, um, the site that like they probably all give up on ever actually happening. Um, but we had, we made it so that you could only start a project if you, um, had a special invite to start one mm. and you could have an invite by being invited by one of us. Uh, and if you got an invite, you could invite five other people. Yep. Um, and so, so there's like a, so like a, a tight knit community. Yeah. Sort of a scarcity, um, from the beginning. And, and that was really helpful because it made it like people would ha- were asking each other to get in. Um, and, and it meant that like, you know, four days after the site went, the site went live April 28th, 2009. Uh, and four days later, the first project was funded and it was a project called drawing for dollars. And it was someone saying, if you give me $5, I'll draw you a picture of something. And he got 35 bucks from three people. Um, but that was like, the system worked. We didn't know anyone involved. Yeah. Like, uh, it was a real validating moment. Right. What were you doing like to spread the word? Like, you, you, you launched, you, you spent all these, and by the way, throughout those like three and a half years, were you working on this every day or was it sort of just like a side project? Um, Perry every day, Charles every day, me more nights and weekends. So you were working full time. I had a day. I still had a day job that I loved. Um, So I was more doing yeah nights and weekends, but was always meeting with, you know, creator friends um, and talking to them about it. 
when the site was live, what did we do to tell people? So you were sort of planting the seeds before it launched. Yeah, I mean, telling for years like, hey, we like, had this been. Is what, yeah. yeah, for years we'd had been. And you guys yeah. didn't raise any money, did you? Uh, yeah, we did. We raised we raised friends and family money up until that point. I mean, I think that there was a, I don't remember what the first press was. It was a couple weeks in maybe. But it was all just like through, through like the internet community and just other, and just people telling people. I mean, it was a very organic kind of growth. I mean, I remember the first time like a modern dance project launched on the site and like a week later there were 10 of them and i just realized oh okay so this is like a community it's like a someone, network effect yeah someone in yeah. a community launches the launches the project people in that community suddenly see oh there's this new option and of course the second someone would start a kickstarter they would email all the most important people in their life trying to send the best email ever saying come support me on this here's this amazing way that i can be helped now and so in every way, we're just like a... It had like a built-in growth mechanism. Yeah, and just, <laughs> and just really bringing real value right. and, like, and validation. And, um, and so just like, it just being such a positive thing to share. And that, but like that, you have to make sure that's the case. Like this is why the site was invite-only um, and why the site was focused on just creative projects and not allowing charity. Because if the site had... Um, people raising money for cancer bills or people, you know, sort of using a really sad story to motivate people to help, the culture of that would be very different. Mm. And especially as a creative person, you wouldn't, couldn't, wouldn't feel so proud of it. Right. So even though we knew that like the crowdfunding market would end up being, would be, could be anything, um, we always saw focusing just right. on creative communities being A, what we personally cared about but be like the only way that works is if it's only a space for that. And was that space, the crowdfunding space, a thing back then? No. So you guys sort of pioneered that. Yeah. Yeah. Like it wasn't new, so you had to deal with all the legalities that came with it. Yeah, I mean, there had been, you know, um, there had been a few other like Celaband had been like the Swedish site that let you buy shares in a band in like 2004. Mm. There had been the artist Jill Solbule had done her own kind of page. Marillion, another band, had done it. Indiegogo had been around like maybe eight months before um, Kickstarter launch. They were like just film and kind of a slightly different take on it. But there was no, you know, Kiva was probably the best example. Like then it would be called, it was called microfinance is how people would talk about it. Mm. Um, But no, so there was nothing. Um, And then Kickstarter launched and just the language of the site, you know, the deadline, the goal, the reward structure, uh, the ticking clock, um, all that just quickly became a form and... Um, you know, within a year, there were probably 30 or 40 sites out there that looked exactly like Kickstarter. Right. Cause then I feel like the reason I asked is it's one of those things where, you know, you have to have this like crazy vision of what it's going to look like because it doesn't exist. You can't model it after something else. So you have, you have nothing to go off of. So you're sort of just envisioning it and then I guess like programming it together. So you're three of you guys, all creatives. How did you guys go about figuring that? customer sorry user interface and then also like actually building it out that it would function like a real website yeah i mean (laughs) hours and hours of uh debating and whiteboarding and you know really like you know you dream everything that could be in this product um and then you have to hone in on what 
what has to be in this product. And, um, and we always had this mindset of like, people can only learn, you can only expect people to learn one new thing at a time. So like, let's try to make this as simple as possible, as familiar as possible. Um, try to make things as self-evident, try to, you know, the less explainer text, the better, like, the numbers on a Kickstarter page of the money, the time, the backers are like, like that might be one of the largest fonts on the internet that people use regularly. Right. But like just trying to very, how do you simply communicate the story? Um, and so a lot of it was just, yeah, simplicity. Like this is a whole new model. There's this conditional funding, the idea that it's not a purchase. Like there's a lot that you have to bake into this. Um, and so it's like, yeah, trying to be, trying to create, a distinct and simple experience. But we'd also have to do things like you wanted, you also want to distinguish between this and like an e-commerce experience because you don't want people to think that they're just buying something. Right, right like the card's going to be charged right away. And I mean, like, again, that, that's something that I don't think necessarily existed before. No, um, Especially not in like the, the microfinancing world. But it's like a huge customer behavior, user behavior that you have to like, a hump that you have to get over and like get them to subscribe to that type of, yeah, I mean the first <laughs> I'd say the first 2 years at least like every Kickstarter video is the creator explaining how Kickstarter works. Right, like you're not going to yeah, be charged. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. put your credit card, we promise you we're not going to charge you. And then there's a point where that stops happening. Yeah. And then you realize like okay, so people know now. But yeah, you needed that. You needed that kind of education and cuz it was is an entirely new form. I mean, it's it's a new incentive structure as a way to generate you know, a kind of action. Um, and, but that, even though it required that kind of education, like people were willing to do it from the beginning because it was exciting and because, you know, to support someone that you cared about directly seemed like, isn't this what like the internet's supposed to be about? So I think it fulfilled uh, a lot of the, the goals and dreams of, of the web. And, um, and, you know, I sort of think of it as it like it, it just put a door in a wall where no one knew a door needed to be. But once it was there, it was just so obvious. Just like, of course, yeah, of course you need mm. a way for just like the fans and the artists to directly collaborate, to make things. And, you know, of course you want the safety of like an artist being stuck with a underfunded project, but fans expecting it anyway. So like, it just, it's, it, it just really, it really creates and provides value. Yeah. yeah see, in the early days, what was your, like, what was your role? And uh, did you end up quitting your other job and going full speed into Kickstarter? Yeah, I mean, my I'd say at the beginning, I was like community. I was talking to artists, creative people. Uh, I was doing copy. I was like, you know, Perry and I working on telling the story and just kind of like, what what is this that we're making here? Um, and then... When we launched, you know, I was I was responding to every customer service email. I was interfa- I was interfacing with every creator. I was interviewing every creator before they launched their project to like make sure it meet, met our guidelines. I was sort of screening those things, um, and then yeah, and then started building out the team. Um, uh, and I still had my day job for the first three months. I would say we were live, maybe two months, um, and. And I was just like doing the CS work, like after work. Um, 
and then that just became, you know, became not, not tenable. And, and, and we could see like the site was having, it wasn't like a hockey stick start, but the site was having enough success that we thought we were going to be able to raise money and actually like have salaries right. probably by the end of the year. So it was in like July right. that I, uh, that I made the, made the leap, but I was, you know, I was afraid to. Yeah. I mean, talk to us about that. Cause I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs are in that position of, you know, like almost broke like at any given moment, like they can be at that $0 or an even negative mark. And, you know, we always talk about it. That moment is, or that, you know, mindset isn't very conducive to being an entrepreneur because at the end of the day, you want to survive, right? Like, sure, money is important and it's not everything, but you need it to keep going. There's a little bit of craziness that entrepreneurs have that like you're on the brink of going broke, but you're still pushing forward and you still want to well, take that you reach Because you just reach these points of um, you're just so far in. Like it's it's the path out is to keep going like there just isn't there isn't another path and there you know there isn't another path maybe for practical reasons but might also just because of like shame you know just like after getting this far am i really am i really gonna be the one who almost right. climbed the mountain like no um so i think those things are they motivate you you know you need you need that kind of conflict to, to push you um so yeah but the the choice to leave um uh, yeah, honestly, it feels like so to, to quit. Yeah. To quit, quit my job. job. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, it feels like so long ago. I just remember like, I just didn't have a lot of savings and, um, had only recently started making like more than $50,000 a year for the first time. And, and you're living in New York, which is living cheap. In, and I'm living in New York. And so I just have, you know, I've just have always, I've always had a scarcity mindset, uh, when it comes to money. And so, yeah, I, you know, even though I believed in what we were doing, like there was just like this deeper fear that over that would override that belief until a certain point where, you know, the site was live, um, people were using it, and yeah, and it was like it was, you know, it had reached the point where there was enough validation for for it to no longer be a dumb risk, mm-hmm. um, and and you know, and if I'd had if I'd had a little bit of savings or if I'd had some other side form of income certainly would have done it earlier but a lot of it was just my own personal narrative about feelings about what it meant to feel secure to be secure Mm -hmm. you mentioned like it wasn't a hockey stick growth situation but was there like a moment maybe like when a pro like a huge project was funded or something where you were like this is going to be huge i mean it was just seeing the gradual it was just like you know just just seeing the size of the projects getting bigger you know, the first time a project broke 10 grand was a big deal. Just seeing it like, it just kept working at larger scales. Um, I mean, the moment where it like breakthrough into mass consciousness in the biggest way was, um, it was February 9th, 2012, when two projects crossed a million dollars in funding for the first time. Wow. And one of those projects had launched the night before, Double Fine Adventure, this video game project. Wow. And so, you know, within, within less than 24 hours, it was going to raise a million dollars. The whole internet was like following along. You know, we would we were all in the office watching on a projector. You would refresh the site, and it would take like two minutes for it to load again. Um, but it was this moment where Kickstarter was just like the, just like this great white knight of the internet. We, you know, we were like the people's lottery ticket. Like, 
a normal person or an overlooked legend could put up a new idea and overnight seemingly be a millionaire. And that brought huge amounts of attention and then brought, you know, creators who wanted some of that money too. Mm -hmm. um, and so then the, you know, I think we started to see the a culture shift in the sort of people who are interested in using the site that instead of it being, uh, or in addition to it being like the modern dance troupe or the musicians or artists that we had worked with them before, now it was people doing startups and people launching products. And, um, and so that just led to projects suddenly raising millions of dollars regularly. Um, and in, in the midst of this, we ended up um, later that year announcing a set of rules kind of out of nowhere called Kickstarter is not a store that banned photorealistic renderings, banned mm -hmm. like product simulations, banned uh, forced projects to show their workable prototype um, and just said we get that like the language of marketing and advertising is of like just selling and promising the world, but like we want this to be a different kind of place. And um, and so that was just like stepping out in front of a giant money train and just right. saying, you know, slow down. Like the, yeah. you got to hold this up. At some point, I'm assuming like the company starts growing and you're hiring more people. Um, and and I know you at some point started serving as the CEO. Um, when did that happen? And what were those early sort of, were there any challenges for you like being in that role? Um, yeah, it was that, the end of 2013 that um, Perry stepped up to become chairman. Charles uh, left the company, um, and then I stepped into the CEO role. Um, and so that was, uh, you know, I think that was just sort of like, it felt like a natural moment of transition. Um, things were going well. Things were in a solid place. We we're about to move into a new office. We had bought this abandoned pencil factory and had in Brooklyn and renovated it. Um, so my first day as CEO was basically our first day in this new office, um, which was, which was crazy. Cause at the comp the company was about 60 people then. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we took up like one tiny corner of one of the three floors of the of the building. <laughs> like really, it was just yeah. like, whoa, what what's supposed to happen here? So it was a real like inflection moment, um, inflection point for the company of moving into this new space, really the company starting to professionalize and becoming more of an organization. Um and like and really growing in, in a lot of different ways. And um and so that, you know, that was like uh you know it was challenging. I mean I you know, Perry and Charles and I had always had a, a good working relationship together and Perry and I had always been very close and making lots of decisions together. And, um, but like feeling the weight of that just on my own shoulders felt was heavier than I thought it was going to be. Um, just like the emotional weight of that. And, um, yeah, but it, you know, it's, it was a, like being in that role was a, like brought out the best of me, also like challenged the weakest parts of me, and um, and I had, I think, many great moments in the in that role. I think I had, you know, moments that were really really hard on me. That you know, I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 just amazing how a job like that sort of exacerbates uh, everything that's inside of you. How many years did you do? That? Did you do that? Uh, I was CEO for almost four years, um, and. Yeah, you know, it was like the um, 
just a lot of like a lot of growth, a lot of you know, a lot of my memory is like recruiting executives, recruiting, mm-hmm. recruiting leaders to the company. Um, and just like what a what a long what a long and um intense process it is to hire to hire senior people, you know, like maybe four months on average. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and that's probably good. That's probably a success yeah, year. It's, it's like four months. months. <laughs> and so that's like maybe for me as a CEO, if it's like someone that's reporting to me, that's maybe like 18 first date dinners with potential candidates, maybe 10 second dinners, you know, may, and wow. like and all this triangulation of the rest of the team um, and running this process where you're simultaneously trying to suss out whether someone would be right for the job while also making sure that they want the job no matter what you think. Yeah. Um, and so that, like so much of, so much of my energy I feel like was about that. Right. Um, and then, and then just like communicating and re-communicating the goals and the objectives of, of the company to the team, you know, knowing where to go, um, is a lot easier than like staying connected to where to go and, and, and staying on point with it. And, um, you know, so there's just like that, uh, a lot of the ways in which the job would stay very similar, you know, like you're uh, as, a, yeah. Uh, and the other, the other, probably the, one of the biggest things that happened while I was CEO was the company made the conversion to become a PBC. Um, and so this is where we rewrote our corporate charter um, to say that um, to make Kickstarter a public benefit corporation and to bind the company to these 15 or so commitments um, that include things like not, using legal but esoteric tax avoidance strategies to avoid paying our taxes and various ways to try to demonstrate, to just try to hold the company accountable, accountable yeah. um, and, and not have it be that like, mm. oh, it's just good, good people run that company so you can trust them. Well, mm. you know, you can only trust them as long as those people are, are in charge. So how do you make those things durable and lasting? Right. Um, and so really, like my last couple of years as CEO, I think was a lot of, it's a lot of like bringing those leaders and a lot of that kind of meta structure work of like advocating for being a PBC, trying to be clear why we yeah. thought this was an important change to make, like why a company like Kickstarter being bound to a profit maximizing mindset is a bad thing mm. for everyone in the long run. And just the need for this kinds of, for this kind of transition. Um, I think it was like around 26, 26- 2017 when you decided to leave. yeah yeah Why, what sort of prompted that um well i mean i think it uh it had really probably started like uh over a year before um i'd hired a couple senior leaders to the company and that didn't work out um one immediately one you know one yeah one was just a different situation um and that at the end of 2016 in my 360 review uh you know, where every year I would get a 40 or 50 page document of anonymous comments, like about the job you're doing. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people saying that things have felt more unsteady that year than they'd ever really felt before. And sort of like pointing to these changes and, um, and other challenges that were related to me. And, um, and I was, I was surprised and concerned when I read this, I mean, in my mind, these were things that had like were over had happened in the past. Right. Um, but I could see that people were still feeling them. Um, and so then, you know, I ended up starting a conversation with the, with the board that I was a part of and just said, Hey, like, um, 
here's this 360, uh, me as a CEO says, here's like, here's why it says this, here's why everything's cool. You know, me as a co-founder says, hey, if we have a CEO that's getting a review that says things are unsteady, I feel like we have to ask questions. And, and these are the kinds of questions that, you know, we should probably be asking. And so that, um, you know, just try to lean into it. And, and through the course of that, um, yeah, decided to go, decided to go. And there was a sort of a moment where um, I reached a kind of a breaking point. Um, you know, having a lot of conversations with, with the board and with Perry um, and then had a day where uh, I was going to work and I just remember I, I was at my front door and I like couldn't lift my arm to open the door. And my wife like found me there a couple of minutes later and was like, what's going on? And um, you know, I just said, I just don't, I just don't, I just can't be that person today. Like I just felt, I just felt all these things that I was sort of carrying, sort of representing the company internally, representing the company of the world, like bringing in these people, knowing that I'm having these larger conversations, not knowing how I felt, you know, all that stuff. And I could just, yeah, it was just heavy. Um, and so it was like maybe four or five months after that, um, that, you know, told the company uh, that I was stepping down, that Perry would step in on an interim basis. And, um, you know, and I made the choice in that, that I like uh, also just wanted to just move forward completely. Um, like, yeah. What did, what did I you want to do? Well, what's that? Yeah. Like, what did you want to do? Because uh, we can sort of talk about what you did, what you've done since then. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. You, you've sort of gone back to writing and yeah. you've written a book, and so is that what your sort of vision was? Like, you wanted to go back to that creative space of just writing and doing what you originally. Loved? I think all I knew at that point was that I, I really that I just wanted to think about something else. I felt like I've been thinking about the same problems for like twelve years, right? And a lot of them are ones that don't have an answer, which is why you keep thinking about them. And mm -hmm. I honestly, I just think, just thought. I don't want to think about these things anymore. Um, and so, but like I, my, my behavior already showed me that, like where I was, my talks were all about like the macro, the macro ideas of the meta structure of Kickstarter versus like the product itself. Like that was what was more personally interesting to me. So I just started digging in that direction. Um, and I've been giving talks sort of about the larger context that Kickstarter was within. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, turn that into a, into a, made the choice to to turn that those ideas into a book and, and to make an argument that I wanted to make an argument that our world had been um, really reduced to a very limited notion of value and that and that form of value is just whatever option makes the most money like that's the right decision um, and like the world of creativity before Kickstarter is an example of that your project sounds great as long as we'll make money on it you know like that is the litmus test for existence um, and to say that that was, we convinced ourselves that that was rational and like how things should be, but that uh, I want to argue that the spectrum of valid rational reasons to do something was far wider than that. And the spectrum of, of what is valuable and what value is, is larger than that. And I wanted to make a socioeconomic, historical, personal experience um, argument, a manifesto. Mm -hmm. that yeah that that makes this case and and tries to does tries to do so in a way that um you know I'm trying to poke what I think are the the 
the deepest assumptions um, because the things I've read and the things I think about make me believe that if you poke the deepest assumptions in the right ways, that things will change. How, was it challenging to kind of transition from this daily life of running this massive business to writing a book? At first, yeah. I mean, I think the first week, like I, I, I like rented a, on Craigslist, I found some studio apartment in Chinatown where I would go and write every day. With so you internet. moved, right? So you eventually, you moved from New that York. That was late. Yeah, I did. Midway LA. through the process, I moved from New York to LA, yeah. uh, but I was still in New York when I started. Got it. But I remember, so I was in this apartment that had no internet and I just like had books I was reading and just like post-its on the walls. Um, it was like my second or third day doing it and I was just like feeling kind of pissed off all day. And I could recognize the kind of pissed off I was feeling was like the way I would feel in my worst days as a CEO. And when I would feel that way as a CEO, like I had, I had a long list of circumstances I could blame. <laughs> you know, it's their fault. It's because it's this kind of yeah, day. Yeah. It's because this is always screwed up, whatever. And I'm having all those same feelings, but yet like I'm the only one there. There's not even any internet, like, but yet I'm in this, <laughs> right. I'm in my, I'm realizing I'm in like a cycle that is like, that is, that is me. And, um, so to like to have to confront that uh, was pretty wild um, because it made me realize oh this is only like day two and I'm already right like it I'm already has nothing like, to do with the CEO role it's personal it's personal and right. also it's like I'm already sort of hitting the the limits of my like comfortable depth on day two right yeah. I'm having these feelings because I'm reaching the limits of where I feel discomfort mm. and like so how much how much farther am I going to have to go yeah. um, and so I ended up. Um, ended up stepping into that. I, I I ended up growing a mustache as a way to force myself to get over that. And in truth, way uh, to do it. Uh, but yeah, I, I've came to find the experience to be very natural. I mean, I think I w I had real moments of misery, um, but also really enjoyed it. And I I I am good at it. I was good at it. Um, you know, and but really, I had to like shut down the rest of my life and just sort of just devote myself to exploring and explaining an idea for the course of about you know sixteen months. And have, you know, listen, after like being inside an organization for ten years, like to be isolated, working yeah. on a deeper thing for sixteen months. I mean, I you know, you couldn't ask for you couldn't ask for something better. Yeah. Um, Why'd you move to LA? Uh, you know, once once I wasn't doing. Kickstarter full time anymore. It just sort of felt like, like I had my New York chapters of Music Critic and then Kickstarter, and I, I don't know, like the idea of starting a third chapter there again was less exciting than just starting something all over again. Mm. Um, you know, we just came, we just tried out here for a month, um, just to like put all of our things in storage. We're mm -hmm. just like, let's figure out what we're gonna do, and then this just felt felt right. Yeah. Um, and and there's like some of the some of the like the critical theory philosophy books I read in college were weirdly written here. Um, <laughs> like, 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 Ram, here, like Ramshi and yeah. Adorno, like these like, you know, Frankfurt school, neo-Marxists, like they came to LA to flee the Nazis. And so like, there's weirdly a large number of uh, important philosophical books that were written in Los Angeles, which I'd always just <laughs> like struck me. Mm, I don't know. Um, so I, so I'd found this idea of like that maybe this would be a good place to disappear Right. Yeah. Um, and it it is very good at that. And so the book is called "This Could Be Our Future." Yeah. And you can find it on Amazon. Yeah, you can find it everywhere. Yeah. It's you know basically it's um. 
yeah, it's doing great. I mean, it's got yeah, I think four four or five stars on Amazon and Goodreads. Um, nice, you know. Uh, and I've been doing talks all over about it. Um, but yeah, the the first half of the book makes this argument about how our world became overtaken by this financial notion of value, how that sort of reduced a lot of our world and is behind a lot of the problems that seem unsolvable to us now. And then the second half of the book, I introduce a, a new framework called Bentoism, which mm. is basically a, 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 a different way of seeing self-interest and a different way of seeing like the spaces in which we operate. Sort so of like uh, to compartmentalize. Yeah. To so like it's Bento. saying, yeah. yeah. So it's saying that like, um, you know, we think of like a hockey stick as like the ultimate success scenario, right? but like, that that spot is just like the bottom left corner of a much larger universe of self-interest. Like there, mm. in the bento, there's four spaces to think about. There's now me, what I want and need right now. This is the world where probably we 90% operate today. Uh, but there's also a future me, the bottom right corner of this bento, um, which is the older, wiser version of yourself, like the salt and pepper version that still has the bod, still has like still has the mind and made all the right choices. So like you're living up to that person. Um, there's also in the top left of the bento, now us, mm -hmm. the people who rely on and who rely on us. And then the top right is future us, your kids or everybody else's kids. And so the idea is that every choice we make has a footprint in all these spaces, now me, future me, now us, future us. But today we're functionally blind to almost everything outside of now me. We don't see it as very real. It's like less rational. Those are more emotional spaces. Right. Um, and but like our inability to create value or to see the value in those of those spaces is exactly uh, what has us so screwed. The bento is just a. It's a very simple tool and framework that builds in a muscle memory um, to think not just about today, uh, to think not just about yourself, um, but also it's a it's a framework for an organization to see like where it's having its impact, um, where there's opportunity uh, for, you know, value to be made for, uh, uh, for you to demonstrate um, something to your customers. Um, and so just like the, to me, the bento is a, is an expression. I'm sure there'll be many more expressions of this, but trying to really, really show what, how it is that we operate in modern life. We, we, we think we're moving around all these like trapped, interrogation booths and like we don't interact with each other but there's there's a, a much larger universe uh, that mm -hmm. we really struggle to perceive um yeah. and so there's a site bentoism.org that uh teaches people this i've taught about workshops to this for about 700 people or so mm -hmm. teaches you your values teaches you tools to making self-coherent choices um and it's it's basically the end goal is about living in integrity with who you are um you know knowing who you are and then knowing how to consistently make choices, honoring that, which is like the whole game and, and not easy to do. Do you see yourself writing more books and really exercising more of that creative muscle or do you see yourself down the line starting another business? You know, is, have you, have you had time to even think about it yet? I know you're like what, almost two and a half, three years removed from Kickstarter. Yeah. Uh, have you had time to put in that, sort of thought? Uh, yeah, I think about those things for sure. I, I think I'm a, I'm, I'm an, I'm a creative person. Um, and so I'm going to keep telling stories and pulling on the things that are interesting to me. Um, um, but what is true is that, you know, by being, uh, by being in the chair, 
by being a CEO, by having that experience, you know, I really do see the world from that way. And, um, and so I'm a lot more collaborative and, and than I used to be and able to, um, to bring people together on these projects. And, and I've learned, yeah, when you get a group of people working together on something, how powerful that can be. Mm. So, um, I'm certainly open to uh, the momentum of ideas generating the need for organization and more structure. Um, that's something I've been toying with a fair amount recently. Um, but in the same way it is with Kickstarter, like it's going to be because an idea is deserving of it, in my opinion, and not out of a desire to do that on its own. Got it. Well, this has been so great. And thank you so much for, you know, um, walking us through that whole story. And, and I wish we had more time to talk more about like bentoism and what you're doing there. But hopefully we can do this again sometime yeah, yeah. Uh, in the future. And, and um, hopefully that could be our future. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thanks so much. All right. All right. Thanks, guys.